Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview Podcast, December 4th, 2017, the Getting Rid of Presidents edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual uh, by one of my regular co-hosts, that is Scott Lucas, who is a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Well, it's only 21 days till Santa, so I'm very excited. How many sleeps is that? That is, is that, gonna, is that, that's that 21 sleeps. sleeps. 21 that's that's sleeps. terminology I had not heard until about four or five years ago, and I hear it almost exclusively from adults. Uh, so I, I get the impression they're like tapping into something that children either say today or used to say. But yeah, it's only come to me very late uh, in, in my life, my understanding of this. That's, that's because you're a very jaded individual. That's true. Also don't have children, which I guess uh, uh, takes the, the magic out of the occasion, but also keeps my vocabulary a little simpler uh, when it comes to it. Cristal is away on assignment this week. Uh, bad luck those who tune in just for her. But in her place, we have Paul Jackson, who is a professor of African politics at our sister department of international development. Welcome, Paul. Uh, long-time listener, uh, first-time guest. Am I right? Indeed, yes. You let me sound like I'm talking to a radio host. You know. um, well, yeah, we're, we're, close, we're close enough. Don't, <laughs> don't shatter my, my illusions of vanity by implying I'm not in that league. Yeah, indeed. Great. Well, uh, good to have you with us, and it will become clear immediately why we have got a professor of African politics with us, because our two topics this week. First, after an epic tenure of nearly 40 years, Robert Mugabe is ousted as president of Zimbabwe. He was pretty terrible, but will his successors be any better? Second, as Donald Trump's one-time national security advisor pleads guilty to lying to the FBI and does a deal to save himself in exchange for flipping on others, is impeachment the likely endpoint? of Trump's presidency, should it be? On November 19th, Robert Mugabe, who'd been president of Zimbabwe since it became independent in 1980, resigned from his post. It came two days after he'd been deposed as leader of the ruling party, ZANU-PF, and a week after a bloodless military coup had effectively suspended him from exercising power. He's now been succeeded by his former vice president, Emerson Mngagwa, who has the support of the military top brass. The sequence of events was apparently kicked off by Mugabe's attempt to dismiss the vice president, which many interpreted as a sign that the 93-year-old president would try to transfer power to his wife, Grace, an unpopular but increasingly powerful figure within the country over recent years. Mugabe ruled the country for nearly 40 years, a period that witnessed controversial expropriation and redistribution of white-owned land, more than one bout of economic meltdown, unfree and sometimes outright stolen elections, and the frequently brutally violent enforcement of single-party rule. All that that was underwritten by Mugabe's status as one of the most articulate and charismatic of the first generation of African independence leaders and the latitude that brought him from key strategic allies, especially South Africa. Few will be weeping to see him go, notwithstanding the fact that most Zimbabweans have never known another leader, but at the same time, few expect his ouster to result in a sudden flowering of civil rights and democracy in the country. And indeed, the stage may now be set, some fear, for a crackdown as the new ruling junta seeks to consolidate its authority against internal rivals. Paul, as previously advertised, you are a professor of African politics. Not quite literally all of it, I would imagine, but suddenly (laughs) uh, many of its countries are under your purview. Now, 
I, uh, I am not a professor of African politics, <laughs> so I know considerably less. But I do remember back in the 1990s, in the mid-1990s, when I was at school and John Major uh, was, uh, was still the prime minister. Tony Blair was Happy still, was still yeah. the coming thing. Good times. Um, I remember then, largely as a result of uh, land redistribution and whatnot, uh, Robert Mugabe and Zimbabwe were a center of international controversy. And the narrative then was broadly, this guy's been around a really long time. He's getting old now. The economic problems of the country are escalating and severe. Uh, This clearly can't go on for a very long time. I wonder what's going to happen next. (coughs) Here we are, 2017. Um, (laughs) It's a long time later, more than 20 years later, and it's only now that this dude is finally being removed from office. How uh, did it manage to last this long, and why is this finally happening now? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think there's there's lots in that. I mean, when you were at school in the the mid-90s, in the early 90s, I was actually doing my PhD in Zimbabwe. So, uh, funnily enough, Zimbabwe is one of the countries in Africa I know I know best. In fact, I, I, made, the, I made a terrible error in that it was, a, it was a comparative study between Ghana and Zimbabwe on economic development. And I think my conclusion was that uh, Zimbabwe was going to do much better than Ghana because it had all of the financial depth and economic development and was actually doing really well at that time. Well, the peril of making clear and verifiable <laughs> yeah. claims, so Paul, is to that To anybody out there who's a PhD student, never, never do that. Yeah. <laughs> to all those investors who, uh, uh, who placed bets arising from that PhD thesis, yeah. uh, this is where you can send your, uh, your missives of Absolutely. lamentation and grievance. Um, I, I think it's, what is also interesting, one of the things you mentioned there was that, that Mugabe is extremely articulate and well-respected as a nationalist leader. And indeed, he, he is still so. So even in the midst of all the things that have been going on in 2017 in Zimbabwe, you still hear at least echoes, and sometimes quite strong echoes, of, of things that he uh, has done for the country. And he, he has done some things for, for Zimbabwe. And certainly when I was there in the early 90s, uh, he, it was a massive success story. You know, there hadn't been, uh, well, there had been one bloodbath in Matavililand. Uh, but certainly in the 1990s, the economy was on an, on an upward trend. It had an extremely good education system. Uh, the University of Zimbabwe was, was thriving. There was the, the biggest tobacco clearing warehouse in, in the world was in, was in Harare. So Zimbabwe was doing really, really well. But sadly, he's not going to be remembered for any of that. Right. Cle- clearly, then, things took a turn mm. at some point for some reason. What was, what was that about? Was it primarily economic and then the political followed that? Or was there a political turn and then the economy spiraled as it's, a result of the politics? It's a mixture of both. If you, if you listen to a lot of his opponents um, under the most recent uh, troubles in Zimbabwe, they will pinpoint 1995-1996 as the period um, when things really changed. That's partly because that's when Grace appeared. Now, Grace Mugabe was a secretary in the typing pool. Zimbabwe is old-fashioned enough in the mid-1990s still to have had a typing pool. Mm-hmm. And she was, a, she was a secretary and caught uh, Robert Mugabe's eye. Um, at the time, his wife, his first wife, who was very, very popular, was dying of cancer. Uh, but he started this affair with, uh, with Grace at that time and then married her. Interestingly, she then stayed out of politics until about 2014. But behind the scenes, she was working extremely hard 
on developing her reputation as Gucci Grace, which you may have come across, uh, or First Shopper, as she's also known as in, right. uh, in Zimbabwe. So she's a lady of expensive taste. She taste, is then. a lady of extraordinarily expensive taste, to the, to the tune of spending more than a million US dollars on a diamond ring uh, in a country that's importing food. Yeah. Um, so she's not, it's safe to say she is not particularly popular amongst the masses of Zimbabwe. Right, she is not the Eva Peron of no. Zimbabwe. No, ab- absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, what what then happened with her trajectory and, and with Mugabe was that a particular group within ZANU PF um, started to become much more corrupt than had previously been the case, and this um, led both to very very rapid economic decline and the the end of a lot of the um, the economic underpinnings of the economy. So it's not just about white farmers. Um, in a, you know, it's, it's the first thing that the British government, for example, goes back to every time, or it's all about getting rid of white farmers. Yeah. It's not just about white farmers. That was farmers. part of what Bob Mugabe would want to go back to a lot, because a- that was like symbolically, it really suited him to have an argument about taking these big land holdings away from these descendants quite, of colonial types. Quite so. But, but the landowners that the land was taken from were not just white white farmers. Many people by then had left. What, what Mugabe actually did was prevent the development of a, of a market in land so that he could control the allocation of land. Mm. So if you're a white farmer, and even if you want to sell your land, there was no way that you could actually transfer the title to the land to somebody else. So they were kind of stuck with large tracts of land. And of course, as progressive waves of people left, not just white farmers, but if you take white farmers as an example, they left, they would leave their land to their neighbour or their family. So you do end up with large tracts of land that, are, that were actually unused, but at the same time with no market in land, no way to actually offload that land to, mm. to anyone, which created its own set of problems. But land and the agricultural economy in Zimbabwe underpins the entire financial sector. That's the real key to the Zimbabwean economy. So one of the reasons why Zimbabwe should be massively rich is not just because it can grow stuff, but actually, farmers do things like save and invest and all of that. Mm. And so, uh, and Zimbabwe has things that you don't get in large parts of the rest of Africa. So it has, it has a, what we would call a financial depth. So you have building societies, insurance companies. You've got a market for risk that you wouldn't get in Kinshasa, for example, in, in the DLC, because people don't think that far in advance, mm. you know, let alone get involved in things like building societies. So the Central African Building Society, for example, is, is, is one of the biggest investors in Zimbabwean economy, as well as one of the, the biggest holders of income from the Zimbabwean farming sector. Hmm. Um, so as soon as that goes under, a whole series of other things that they would normally be investing in would then start to fall as well. And Zimbabwe had a very, very strong and growing black middle class. So every day you would sit in Harare um, and you would open a newspaper and there would be the board of Standard Chartered Zimbabwe, for example. And it would be a majority black board because the, edu- the education system was extremely good. Um, you didn't have white-only schools anymore in, in, in Zimbabwe. They weren't allowed. And many of the, those um, black African Zimbabweans had made enough money to send their kids to some quite wealthy schools. Um, being a former British, uh, British economy, of course, Zimbabwe does have a public school system in the way that we in the UK would understand it, uh, boarding mm. schools. And, um, and, and they were militantly mixed in terms of uh, racially. Mm. Um, and it, it was very interesting because um, a lot of those uh, black Zimbabweans were becoming a bit too successful. 
Um, and I think that was one of the that, that has been one of the issues. And what, what, so what they mean by too successful would be that you're developing like, economic holdings that would allow you to function relatively autonomously from the yeah. political system and the kind of economically independent. You're, you're de- what you're doing is you're developing a capitalist class that mm. was internationally mobile, that was not reliant on ZANU PF for patronage, and the people who've been involved in the in the nationalist war. Um, were very closely allied to ZANU-PF. And, you know, we're talking a philosophy that at least derives from a very old-fashioned idea of communism. So you're you're swapping the monopoly of capital for the monopoly of administration. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, instead of somebody uh, owning shares, you would own the ability to grant a license to somebody to do something, or you would have control over property. Hmm. And, um, And if you have an independent capitalist class, then actually you you don't control them, uh, and that itself was becoming a problem. Right. So they launched they launched a bunch of economic reforms to try and undermine that growing autonomy on the part of they, they the did of um, that group, and it was also they they have um, a series of hated sets of legislation that are, are do to do with indigenization as it as it was termed. So again, Mugabe used the trope of it's it's all the whites. Or, or the Asians, actually, is quite a like in, in many former British colonies. There's a very strong um, group of Asian capitalists who who run particular sorts of business, so textiles, garments, that kind of thing, railways, mm-hmm. uh, usual kind of things, and um, they they were held to be non-indigenous, uh, and therefore we we according to Mugabe, we want black Zimbabweans to take over. But of course, in in reality. There were many black Zimbabweans who were already playing a very active part in that economy. It's just they weren't necessarily ZANU-PF supporting black Zimbabweans who were doing Mm. that. So, I mean, the economy takes this hard turn south sometime beginning in the the 1990s. and you know, whenever you encounter Zimbabwe on the news, one of the things that now is just par for the course in the description is the talk of hyperinflation, shortages yeah. of important goods, uh, the impossibility of living what we would consider to be a normal life without without all sorts of um, all sorts of difficulty, and that tends to be unpopular in any society if you're in charge of a country and like a country people remember being relatively functional and prosperous gets that way the normal response to that is that whoever's in charge gets blamed for it and then they lose power so part of why the political systems ended up where it's ended up is because in the context where the economy is going to hell in that way the desire of the population to maybe think about changing who's in charge needed to be shut off. So the other thing that you see or have seen for like two solid decades is every once in a while there'll be an election due. Uh, there'll be notionally a campaign for who's going to be the president, who's going to be in parliament. Um, supporters of ZANU-PF, Robert Mugabe, will like tour the country in pickup trucks, beating the living daylights out yeah. of anybody who is standing as part of the opposition. Um, they will either then... Uh, pull out of the election claiming they can't campaign or they will run in the vote and lose because they can't, they couldn't campaign or mm-hmm. because the vote is rigged. There will then be a massive international outcry and a, a kind of standoff between people who might well have won the election otherwise and, and ZANU-PF Mugabe. And then one way or another, the outcome always seems to be Mugabe stays in charge, ZANU-PF stays in charge. Sometimes everyone in the opposition just gets excluded or thrown in jail. Sometimes they get some empty offices and like pretend power to 
to buy them off. But essentially, the the one party system remains with a with a solid grip. Um, so now. Uh, I suppose when you hear Robert Mugabe has fallen from power, many people might imagine that that dynamic has reached its end point, that finally the forces trying to displace him have at last, glory day, succeeded in achieving their goal. But it doesn't sound from the way like the TikTok of events played out that that's actually what's happened. It's actually... It's the forces that want to keep things basically the same that seem yeah. to be behind getting rid of him <coughs> now, not the forces who've been wanting to get rid of him all along. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, my, my personal view is, is the best way to understand what's, what's happened is it, it's a palace coup, uh, more or less. It's, these are all ZANU-PF. Um, it's, it's infighting within ZANU-PF. In, in one sense, that's not surprising because the, easily the biggest force in Zimbabwe over the last 30, 40 years has been ZANU-PF. Yeah, they've made if it you, pretty you know, difficult to be They've made it very difficult force. to be anyone else. Um, yeah, I mean, so as soon as you get a party that that's broad, you, you kind of invite factionalism in some ways because that's the only way that, that, that you can campaign politically. Actually, yeah. and that in, in lots of ways has been the history of a lot of those big, 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 big movements. And indeed, after what you, you what you just introduced there, it's quite remarkable that m- the movement for democratic change, which is the the main opposition, has kept going for so long, and indeed does have some MPs. It has, which is associated with uh, Morgan Changarai, who, like on several occasions, ran with varying levels of success against Mugabe yeah. for the presidency, uh, never <coughs> actually getting over the top, but yeah. largely because the process was always, to some degree or another, rigged. Yeah. But, I mean, I, who I think deserves enormous credit just for staying power. Right. I mean, because he's, they've he, tried everything against him. I mean, he has been literally beaten up. Oh, uh, like several times. Several times. Yeah, he, he's had so an unnaturally large number of car crashes. He's mm-hmm. just been really, really unlucky with the cars yeah. that he's bought. Those roads, those roads will get you. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think just to, just to back up what you were saying about the economic development, that you, you've also got, you've got an 80% unemployment rate in Zimbabwe, and you've got an entirely worthless currency. So remind me again, Bob, by international standards, is that high or is that... <laughs> <laughs> it's just, there is... I, I mean, basically, if you were just measuring Mugabe on, on, on economics, it's a completely irredeemable position, really. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a trillion Zimbabwean dollar note at home that's worth nothing, mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. And I've got all the billions as well. I've sort of collected them and as they just went up and up. And this is something we talk about the Weimar Republic and people mm-hmm. were sort of, you know, uh, uh, wheelbarrows full of, full of uh, Deutschmarks and all that kind of stuff. Um, but actually, this, this has become this worse than that because it is completely worthless. It's not with right. anything. I mean, the raw materials yeah. with which the money is made probably, probably vastly exceed yeah, probably the money exceeds itself. the value of yeah. anything that's printed right. on it. Yeah. Like, it like, like a clunker worth. car that you turn in for scrap. Yeah. Like if you use the money as paper in some, for some retail purpose, you get more for it. than. So, so what you've done is you've reduced probably the most successful economy in Africa to what, is, what amounts to a barter economy for most of the population. Plus, for some members of the elite, a US dollar economy. So if you've got access to US dollars, you can buy and sell things in, in Zimbabwe. But obviously, if you're just an ordinary person in the population mm-hmm. in Zimbabwe, let alone any of the vulnerable or poor groups in Zimbabwe, not a chance. You're never going to see any money to be able to buy anything. You have to be able to produce something that you then barter. Or, of course, you turn to petty crime. Which is part of the unfortunate dynamic you sometimes get in these situations where, like, at, 
a near total economic collapse, of course, gives the general population the, like the strongest incentive possible to want to get rid of the people who are in charge and responsible yeah. for it. But if there are no resources in the country and the few resources there are, are under tight control of the people who are in charge, it's yeah. really it, it's harder than ever to actually successfully displace them. And what, what you also have in Zimbabwe is is a complete disconnect between the institutions that are in control and the fact that they're in Zimbabwe. It's almost incidental that they're in Zimbabwe because they trade diamonds from the from the DRC, they make the, they make deals with the Chinese government over all kinds of different things. They used to get oil from Libya and that, that that's created a problem for them mm. in the in the aftermath of the fall of Gaddafi. Um, but actually, they've become a kind of international diamond trading class that it doesn't really need the taxation from Zimbabwe to sustain itself. And that actually is part of the part of the issue. So if you're in the army in Zimbabwe, your, your wages don't necessarily come from taxation and they don't come from the state. They may well come from a series of diamond mines. He's drawing rent on yeah. these resources yeah. that happen to be available. And so if you marry into that class, as Grace did, then you want your share of the diamonds. You want your, your share of that kind of corrupt uh, mm. income. Um, it, the other thing to note is that actually the army is a fascinating institution in, 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 in Zimbabwe because it was used um, almost deliberately as a state-building tool by, by Mugabe and his particular nationalist group. Because in 1980, at the end of the Rhodesian regime, there were, there were two nationalist groups. There was Joshua and Como. Uh, and there was and there was Mugabe, and actually Nkomo's organisation was regarded as the most well developed and the militarily uh, much more sophisticated, modelled very much on the Soviet model. Whereas Mugabe's was small, cell-like, almost uh, Maoist uh, in terms of cadres infil infiltrating villages, all of that kind of stuff. But nowhere near as sophisticated as the Soviet-style uh, Nkomo uh, mm -hmm. model. Um, but then, firstly, um, Mugabe managed to. Um, turn the former Rhodesian security forces, what was left of them, uh, plus his own uh, organisation, notably the uh, the famous North Korean trained Fifth Brigade of the Army. They sound um, nice. They they Good are. Guys. They're, 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 yeah, yeah, very trained to be nice. Hearts and minds, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and they were sent into Matabili land. Um, now Mugabe is a is a Shona. Uh, and the Matabili are, are the other minority ethnic group within within Zimbabwe. Mm. And that was essentially uh, one nationalist group, not exactly liquidating, but seriously hobbling the other nationalist group. And they, they killed an awful lot of people in the early 80s, 1983, 1984. And they systematically destroyed the other nationalist group by accusing them of uh, treason and various other things. Mm -hmm. um, and that was all done... Um, by taking control of the army. So first they, they hired the remains of the Rhodesian security forces to do, to do that, and then they made it so unpleasant for those Rhodesian security force guys that they nearly all left and went to South Africa and ended up fighting in the, the Bush Wars and all of that kind of thing. Mm. But then that left Mugabe in charge of the army. And so the people you see coming into the cabinet now, the people you saw on television um, even now in 2017, they, these are all part of that generation of people who came through. Right, and the, the <clears throat> army who, from what you've just said, were like the linchpin of Mugabe's control of the country for most of this period, they have been instrumental in making this decision. Like effectively, he fired the vice president. The vice president ran across the border to an adjacent country and yeah. then 
essentially it seems like the call went into the army to say, okay, who's really in charge now? You pick. And yeah. their decision was to go with the vice president and to tell Mugabe. Essentially, uh, you know, given their track record with him, they seem to have done it more nicely and gently and with more of a pretense that it was up to him than many people would be accorded in the same situation. Yeah. But basically they told him, time's up, uh, you're yeah, no they, longer they fired running him, this place. More or less. Yeah. Um, I mean, Zimbabwe does have a long history of, 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 of actually allowing previous dictators to live in the country. So Ian Smith, who is the, who is the leader of the, the previous Rhodesian regime uh, in, and fought the Bush War, he, he lived, I mean, he died in, what, about 2000 in, in Harare. So he lived, he just retired to his bungalow in Harare, mm-hmm. lived, lived happily and was never really troubled. Yeah. So there's a kind of precedent for that. Well, uh, one that I imagine Robert Mugabe is rather pleased uh, <laughs> oh, to, to have set uh, in the circumstances. Um, so, so is, there any, is there any kind of programmatic... You, we've talked about Grace Mugabe and like her being a potential usurper. We've talked about the armed forces and their apparently being on side with, with, with the vice president. Um, is there any kind of programmatic difference in terms of what they, as constituencies of the elite, want to happen next? Or are they just in the most literal and raw way arguing about whether or not they personally are in charge? Does it make, no, there, it, does there, it make a difference to anyone themselves? There are at least this? superficial programmatic differences. So in order to understand what's happened, you need to put those two things, the army and, and, and Grace Mugabe, together. But, but also you, will, you need to realise that, as like all African dictators in particular, Mugabe enjoyed the uh, patronage of several semi-official paramilitary groups that were actually his enforcers on the ground. Mm. So in terms of people beating people up in, in different regional areas, you, it may well not have been the army doing that. Um, it was probably some branch of the of intelligence or some uh, vaguely paramilitary unit. Um, yeah, there was lots of talk of war veterans during the land redistribution, and I yeah. mean, the, the, the famous joke was always that many of them were like manifestly Very, in their mid twenties, yeah. and the war they were supposed to have fought in was like older than them. The, so, there are the war veterans are kind. Of, it's a kind of catch-all umbrella phrase for an awful lot of different groups under that. There is actually a paramilitary organisation that is, is linked with that. There is also a youth organisation. Uh, a kind of equivalent of a sort of young communist league type type thing who sort are Mug- agitators on the street Mugabe and, youth if you will yeah yeah all, all of that and, and in fact the the leader of the youth organization was one of the first uh, supporters of Grace Mugabe who was who was arrested mm. and in um during the the coup that wasn't actually a coup um, although it may have helped if he hadn't appeared on television in full military uniform saying this is not a coup. If he just put a suit on, it may have looked a Yeah, bit as they say in America, the optics were <clears throat> yeah, not great. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah. Um, but actually it was him, it was the leader of the youth movement who was closely allied to Grace, who made a speech that appeared to be the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. You, you have to bear in mind that the Grace was the leader of a group called the G40, which was a group within ZANU-PF who were supporters of Grace, so she, they were the forty largest, the group of forty yeah. largest economies within. Yeah, the exactly. It's kind of an unfortunate. But she, um, that particular group, were regarded as being um, young, upcoming, uh, extremely rapacious, and, uh, uh, and very, very corrupt people. Again, almost they sound great. Not, I can't, yeah, see, I can't see what the problem not, might have one, been. One of them had been the, was actually the longest-serving minister. Uh, under Mugabe, and he started serving as a minister in 1980, and was still ser- is, was still serving until yesterday, mm. uh, officially. 
Um, but there were, a lot of these people were regarded by the rest of ZANU-PF as kind of not proper politicians. These are not proper party members. They are just in it for the money. You know, we, we may be corrupt, but at least we kind of, you know, we've had a long, a long history of serving as well as being corrupt. Oh, right. This is, this is like, like the Italian mafia yeah, complaining yeah, about yeah. the Russians or something. Yeah, it's like, exactly. We've, exactly. we've got honor. These guys it's, will just kill you. Yeah, it's kind of shades of gray, uh, you know. Um, and, and what happened over the last few months is that Grace has been ratcheting up the rhetoric against the army because he, she sees the army in Amangagwa um, as the head of intelligence who's also closely linked with the army as the main rival for her being the successor to Robert Mugabe. Turns out she was right. <laughs> Turns out she was absolutely right on that, but she had overplayed her hand hugely mm. and completely underestimated the power of the army. Mm. And, and unless you understand the history of how Mugabe has constructed his state and the role of the army in it, you would, you would always do that. Mm. And, you know, Grace Mugabe, for all her great strengths, speaking as an educator, is probably not the brightest. Mm. So I'm not sure she really understood that. Mm. So exit question, because we're, we're nearly out of time mm. for this item. Um, okay, Grace Mugabe made her play. Her play has gone wrong. The forces of the status quo uh, would seem to have reasserted themselves very powerfully. Flashing forward one, two, three years, are we going to see basically same old, same old under new management rolled out? Or is this the beginning of a destabilizing sequence of events that could see major change happen in Zimbabwe? Um, I, I think, that like everything, there's, 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 there's the kind of two possibilities. And I, I've seen both reflected in, in media coverage and um, comments from friends of mine in Zimbabwe. The, the first one is the kind of old African phrase, which is same car, different driver, uh, which you get all over the place. And, and there is an element of that because the cabinet who were named this morning are all, it's entirely ZANU-PF. So there's no member of the opposition in the, in the new cabinet at all, which I think would be hugely disappointing to a lot of those campaigners who are out on the, on the, on the streets. In one way, not surprising at all. Um, in another way, it's slightly surprising that there aren't even any token members of the opposition in the, mm. in, in, in the cabinet. Um, so there is a, a serious danger of that. What I think there are chinks of light, however, in two ways. The first one, Amangagwa, is um, he is more of a pragmatist than, than Mugabe. He is a deeply intelligent person, well-educated, very smooth, quite scary figure to have as a dictator. Mm -hmm. um, he understands that actually the key to Zimbabwe is to get the economy up and running again because it just, it literally cannot continue like this. There's right. nowhere for it to Tw go. 22 so years, they finally cracked that How is that it going to get uh, worse? That, that insight you know, is in place then. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it just can't... It, actually can't get any worse than, right. than what it is at the minute. Mm. But in order Un to unless, the economy, they unless they just start literally liquidating the material <laughs> no, stuff, exactly, yeah. like basically everything, everything um, abstract is already gone. Quite. I mean, it, it's... so they. But in order to get the economy going, they need to get the 1.3 to 2 million exiles Zimbabwe's back into Zimbabwe again. And you also need to get uh, international investment. So you have to deal with the international community. And the international community have been gearing up for years, for kind of nearly 20 years, waiting for Mugabe to pop his clogs and all the rest of it. And um, so they're waiting to get back involved again. And investors will invest in Zimbabwe because, you know, you'll be buying cheap in an economy that, you know, the risk is worthwhile because, you know, it could be massive. massive right, because it's like junk status right yeah, now. And absolutely. if it turns out to but, be... But, you know, in 10 years' time, it then. could be, you know, you could certainly make money on some things. 
although it's probably going to take you 20 years to actually revitalize all of the infrastructure that needs doing. Mm -hmm. The second thing that that leaves me with some optimism is this idea that that the army remains the most effective institution in, in Zimbabwe. And that can be a bad thing, but it can also be a positive thing. The army, the core of the army, with the exception of the 5th Brigade, and I note that the guy who used to be the commander of the 5th Brigade, uh, who is now an Air Force commander, I don't know when he learned to fly, but he's now the Air Force commander, he has just been named in the cabinet as well. And he is the person who's responsible for heading up the 5th Brigade when they massacred all those people in Matabililand in the 80s. So this is Mm. not going to be a popular appointment amongst a significant minority of the population. But someone's made the calculation it's better to have him in the tent yeah, than, than out. Exactly. And he is one of the old guard. He's proper old guard. Um, the army itself, the main core of the army, was trained by us, the British, uh, and, until at least 2000, 2001, where there was a British military advisory training team in Harare. And armies, although they can be hugely, hugely negative... They also know, eventually, that the way they gain prestige is to work with other armies. And they can also be massively internationalist in doing Mm. that. And I think the people who are currently heading up the army, in conjunction with Amangagwa, I think they will, at some level, reach out to the international community. And that that leaves me with some basis for optimism. But I think it's probably still a bit of a long shot. Well, we'll we'll take it in the circumstances. (laughs) Thanks very much, Paul. Okay, it's time for number of the week, the round where we find an entry point into a piece of news chatter using a digit or numeral. Scott, what have you got for us this week? My number of the week, Adam, is 70. Uh, That is the number of months since uh, the president of Yemen, uh, a Gulf country, Ali Abdallah Saleh, lost power after mass protest in 2011-2012. So why is that significant? Because earlier today, hours before we recorded, uh, Mr. Saleh has reportedly been killed in an attack inside Yemen by his former allies, the Houthi insurgency. Uh, Why is that significant to us? Well, Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the world, but it is now becoming... uh, amongst many Middle East crises, the cockpit of one of the most uh, bloody and dangerous. And that is that far from bringing in an orderly transition of power after Saleh fell, there have been various factions who have fought a weak government that succeeded him. So we had gotten to the point where one of these factions, the Houthis, uh, were trying to push the nominal government out of power. Saleh had aligned himself with them. That, in turn, brought other players into the conflict. The Iranians support the Houthis, at least politically and probably militarily, and Saudi Arabia, under a very aggressive crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, intervenes in the civil war with airstrikes. And now we're at a position where millions are at risk of malnutrition or starvation, uh, where there are blockades on the country, and many thousands have been killed in airstrikes. Where does it go from here? Well, only 48 hours ago, Saleh had broken with the Houthis, had declared his own war against them. Fights had broken out. Uh, So we had a war within a war. Now he is dead. Does that bring greater involvement by the Saudis, by other countries in the conflict? 
Do the Houthis press on against the nominal government and move into the south of Yemen? In other words, I bring you this number not to bring you joy at this season of goodwill, but to bring you uncertainty and to say that although Yemen has largely flown under the radar, I think probably for many people out there, that increasingly it will become both a local and regional uh, conflict with serious consequences. Okay, Mr. Saleh's very short war uh, against his own former allies is at an end. Paul, what have you got for us? Well, I, I have I have three potential numbers all about the same thing. So, uh, um, well, don't get greedy. Let's, uh, <laughs> but if they're all yeah. about the same story, I guess they well, are. I, guess so that's I, fine. I could pick the seven, which is uh, the seventh of December, which is the date of the the final element of the Nepali election, or three, which is the number of days, or two hundred and seventy-five, which is the uh, the number of, uh, of of representatives in the House of Representatives. You are a master of this game, and we salute you. <laughs> um, Nepal, um, a, a small country with which I am, I am very familiar, is particularly interesting at the minute because it is the subject of great power, old-fashioned great power rivalry between India and China. Uh, famously, uh, a former king of Nepal described Nepal as, as being a gourd between two rocks. Uh, and indeed, the chief of, former chief of defense staff once told me that uh, Nepal's entire military strategy was to hold either China or India up for three days if they were invaded uh, and wait for the other one to intervene. Um, because they didn't stand a chance of winning any kind of war. Um, and um, what has been particularly interesting at the minute is that um, both of the, uh, the main political parties have been undergoing some level of transition. So in Nepal, you have something called Nepali Congress, which is a mirror of the, the National Congress in India. So an old-fashioned, liberal, democratic uh, party of markets and democracy, all of that kind of stuff. On the other side, you have um, a really complex and somewhat Monty Python-esque um, kind of constructed level of hundreds of different parties. At the minute, there are probably about 13 different communist parties of Nepal, all called Communist Party of Nepal in brackets something. So the Maoists, for example, who fought a war for 10 years, are now the Communist Party of Unified Communist Party of Nepal oh, in brackets, for extra, Maoist Centre. Extra comedy value uh, in uh, that first yeah, word. Absolutely. So, so it is a kind of veritable Python-esque kind of uh, le- uh, lexicon of, of, of politics. Mm-hmm. However, however, what has happened leading up to this election is that all the leftist parties, noticeably the Maoists, who were the third biggest party, and the UML, now you're really going to love this, this is the Communist Party of Nepal, in brackets, United Marxist-Leninists. Um, well, maybe they do unite the Marxists yeah, and the Leninists, yeah. they just left everybody well, else they, out. Although I have to say, in my opinion, as, as someone who did politics in the 80s, where all of my tutors were either Marxists or Leninists, uh, I, I, one of the reasons I get on with the Maoists so well is I've, I've discovered that I actually speak fluent Maoist. It's like going back in time, I can do this language. Hmm. But they are, the UML are neither Marxists nor Leninists, as far as I can work out. They're more like a, a social democratic party, a kind of centrist, <laughs> vaguely leftist party. But being called communist is electoral gold in, 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 in Nepal. They, they've joined forces into what they call a left alliance. So you've basically got Nepali con- Congress as a kind of liberal party versus all of the left-wing parties. And th- this has caused a whole series of issues within Nepal because this is the first time ever that there's going to be a government elected for five years, a five-year term. So these elections are very, very important. Um, remember that Nepal in, in, the late 19, uh, in the early 1990s was an absolutist monarchy, or mm-hmm. technically speaking, it was more like an oligarchy. Uh, it, was, it was controlled by a small group of families. It then went through a democratic transition. 
then. It's been through a war in 10 years. It's had an interim constitution. Uh, its royal family were either shot or have been deposed. It's then had uh, a new constitutional uh, assembly, and now it's got a new parliament. A lot has happened in kind of 25 years in, the, in Nepal, basically. Um, and now it's coming to the end of those kind of political ructions, and it's coming out and it's electing a government for the first time ever for five years. This is also important because on one side of the border you've got China, the other side of the border you've got India. The Chinese want to build uh, an infrastructure, um, a road infrastructure that goes into Nepal that will allow them then to trade over the open border between Nepal and India. So the Indians don't like this, understandably, because they regard Nepal as part of their traditional sphere of influence. And what you have in Nepal at the minute are a whole series of rumours about who's set up who in this. So the left alliance, if you talk to some people or you read some coverage, is about the Chinese setting that up. Whereas if you read the opposite coverage, it's, it's got nothing to do with the Chinese. It's the Indians setting it up. Mm-hmm. And then actually it's a reflection of quite long-term policies on both sides. And it reflects the differences in uh, foreign policy of both India and China. So the Chinese are very much about making deals. We'll build you a big road. We'll build you some infrastructure. We'll give you all of your medical facilities for your military. They've been on a charm offensive for the last, the last 10 years. Um, and they actually went to see the leader of the NC, uh, the Nepali Congress, the other day, the, the Chinese ambassador, to say, just to reaffirm their long-term um, unwillingness to interfere in domestic politics, which tells me that they actually were interfering in domestic politics mm-hmm. and felt they had to apologise for it. On the other hand, you've got India that, that actually has a different form of foreign policy in terms of how it enforces it. So it's kind of random ratcheting up. So you're not going to do that today. We're going to randomly close the border today. Or we're going to cut the prices we pay for your hydroelectric power. Or we're not going to allow the Chinese to build this. Um, and the, the, the Indians have a long-term policy of not supporting leaders of political parties, but the person who is the second most important in each political party. Because what they, they and, and they've done that consistently over a long period of time across all of the political parties, and they they do that in order to keep the leader kind of uh, straight, if you like. And they're quite perfectly willing to swap who they support. So when the Maoists were in power, you've got Prachanda and Batrai who were who were swapping over being prime minister. And each time they did that, the Indians support switched their allegiance to the second the second in, in, in command. So it's a fascinating exercise, a fascinating case study in geopolitics and a, and a small country struggling in between two kind of global superpowers, if you like. Good luck, Nepal. Uh, and, yeah. and good luck anybody who hasn't got Paul's decades of experience <laughs> trying to dip in and understand it by the sounds of all that. But uh, important stuff. I am going to go with the number uh, uh, 1720 or 1720. That is the... ELO rating, ELO rating, uh, as uh, advertised on the website 538, the statistical politics and uh, uh, and sport uh, website run by ESPN, best known for its uh, uh, most senior editor, Nate Silver. This is the score that is given to the group in which Russia, uh, the hosts of the Football World Cup, which is about to happen, um, the score of given to the group in which they have been landed as a result of the uh, World Cup draw for the first round that just took place the other day. This is basically a numerical system that was devised to statistically work out the relative quality of the groups, of all of the teams that end up in any particular World 
World Cup first round qualification group and therefore I guess the ease with which you would expect a team of some competence to progress from it. Uh, Russia were in a situation where they could perfectly well have ended up in, in a group with some big teams like Brazil or Germany. Uh, former winners of the tournament known for their quality. According to this statistical measure, Russia, again, the host of the event, have got the uh, the second easiest group in the history of the entire tournament <laughs> and the easiest within the modern era. Um, now, I, uh, you know, I will say two things. One, that... Uh, it would be enormously good from the perspective of the organizers of the World Cup if the hosts, Russia, should happen to remain in the tournament for as long as possible and certainly pass the first round. And secondly, that uh, international football administration is not uh, a sphere uh, within which I would say the most unimpeachable standards of probity have previously been maintained. However, I will also say that I would like in no way to suggest that those facts might be united to produce any speculative analysis of any kind about how this might have come about. It simply interesting, especially given what we're about to talk about uh, perhaps next, uh, that Russia, uh, at this most difficult of times in many international regards, has been so lucky uh, as to have secured what it needs in this particular instance. Um, It's always useful to have a Russian on your side uh, when these things are happening, it would seem. Just as everyone's thoughts were turning to the weekend last Friday, a bombshell emerged from the office of Robert Mueller, the special counsel and former FBI director, running a heavily resourced investigation in the United States into possible crimes and improprieties committed by members of the Trump campaign during and after the 2016 presidential election. The most sensational focus of that investigation, of course, is whether Trump or his aides knowingly conspired with Russian intelligence to deploy emails acquired by illegal hacking to hobble the campaign of his opponent and front-runner, Hillary Clinton. The revelation uh, this week was that Mike Flynn, a senior campaign advisor, then appointed national security advisor when Trump took office, was to plead guilty to a charge of lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia during the transition. Given his previous seniority and security clearance, this was pretty bad news in itself for the White House. But the bigger story was that despite what leaks have suggested was vast legal exposure regarding a range of other Offenses. Flynn's charge sheet was so modest as a result of his agreement to cooperate with Mueller's investigation. This led to an explosion of analysis suggesting Flynn must have fully flipped on the president to escape jail and bankrupting legal bids and that his inside information might incriminate numerous others. At the very least, the president appears wide open to a charge of obstruction of justice. Having first leaned on former FBI director James Comey to stop investigating Flynn immediately after Flynn's resignation and then firing Comey when he persisted with the Russia investigation after that. It was these events that led to Mueller's appointment as special counsel. All this has left observers asking with renewed interest if this story might end with the impeachment of the president and therefore his removal from office. In parallel, the whispers have certainly not grown quieter among both Democratic and Republican ranks that Trump's already volatile temperament is crumbling under the pressures of the presidency. Ezra Klein wrote an excellent piece on Vox.com this week uh, asking whether it was necessary to, quote, normalize the concept of impeachment so that the country might deal with a situation where the president, even if not a criminal or incapacitated, is simply unfit to occupy the office. So, Scott, that was a... That was a, a cavalcade of stuff, and it was basically just getting us through one day's uh, set of updates. Uh, those uh, I, I, I struggle 
even though it's basically my part-time job, I struggle to stay on top of all this stuff. So I have enormous sympathy for everybody outside it who's trying to uh, to keep an eye on what John Oliver is so aptly termed dumb Watergate, uh, which is to say <laughs> a conspiracy that precisely resembles Watergate, except that all the participants are extremely stupid in the way they're going about it. Um, Based on this latest information, we'll come to the broader question of like impeachment and yeah. its rights and wrongs as a process in general later. Have we moved another minute closer to midnight uh, in terms of the Trump presidency's uh, looming apparent telos as a as an a, and a, a prematurely ended enterprise? Oh yeah, we moved at least one more minute closer to midnight. The question is, how many minutes away are we? until the bell finally rings. Oh, nice dodge. Uh, bef- before I, I get into the specific case, let me just give you a little bit of backdrop in terms of the craziness that went on um, because I was covering this day to day for EA Worldview. And on Wednesday, we had the huge story where the president went off the rails by retweeting the Islamophobic videos of a far-right British group. Oh, yeah, first. that was like two days before, right? It feels, it, feels, yeah, exactly. like, it feels like that was, uh, that was six months ago, a long-forgotten long scandal. Now, in normal times, we'd be spending weeks debating that one story going, okay, maybe he's gone a bit too far, mm-hmm. right? By Friday morning, I was doing media interviews on whether or not Rex Tillerson was going to be pushed out of office as Secretary of State mm-hmm. because someone, senior official within the White House, was spreading the story amongst the media that there was a plan to do so. Right. Uh, Every, everybody was writing obituaries up. Rex yeah. Tillerson, worst secretary of yeah. state ever. He's now going to leave. Rex, we never knew yeah. you. Like I, all, those of us who write about it were on standby to, like, to do the yeah. final confirmation pieces, suddenly overtaken. Right. Friday morning, because, by the way, that person who or camp that was saying Rex Tillerson is gone, hint it, Jared Kushner, we know it was you, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor who's trying to get a clear run on being America's favorite diplomat. Within hours, then, to lead into where your, your introduction, Mike Flynn, who is a uh, former senior Trump campaign official, former national security advisor for 25 days, uh, all of a sudden pleads guilty. And you're absolutely right that the significance of only the one charge with a maximum recommended sentence of five years uh, confirmed, and indeed other sources have verified that he is now cooperating with the special counsel, Robert Mueller. And why is that significant? Because you... Do not cut a deal with someone looking down the ladder. You only give them the deal if you look up the ladder. So who do we look up the ladder from from Flynn in terms of documents and testimony? That looks at maybe Attorney General Jeff Sessions, but most likely Jared Kushner. Because what is important beyond what you've already said about last Friday is what the court records opened up. Um, Certainly, one of the three wings of the Mueller investigation is the obstruction of justice charges, which I think will do for Trump in the end. One is Russia's financial input, which may have gone into the Trump campaign, but the other is the level of contacts between the Trump campaign and the Russian officials. And what we had specifically with Flynn is that we now know that on December 22nd, during the transition, Jared Kushner instructed him to talk to the Russians and other foreign delegations about blocking a resolution in the UN Security Council, uh, which would have condemned Israeli settlements on the West Bank. We then know that the big case on December 29th, when Flynn talked to Sergei Kislyak five times, he did so after he got guidance from a woman named K.T. McFarland. Now, the importance of that is, is that K.T. McFarland was actually Flynn's junior. 
she in fact would become Deputy National Security Advisor. So KT McFarlane would not be giving him instructions off her own accord. She was relaying it from someone else. And that's who we have to ascertain who it was. To get back to your question and then to to answer it just directly, as Donald Trump's agitated tweet, tweets show this weekend and as his lawyers' agitated comments show, they now know we are very close to someone like Kushner possibly facing criminal charges as well as political pressure. And once Kushner is gone, you're left with Trump. So, and the suggestion is that, that, that because of the frequency yeah. of their interaction and his particular role, that, that Kushner would know an awful lot of things that the president has said, would have been involved in a whole bunch of conversations that were he to reveal them in their entirety would be really, really bad. Absolutely right. And, you know, that this is now in the, you know, the prosecutors are inside the gates. But if I can add just one more thing very briefly that adds to this, um, what compounded the Flynn uh, guilty plea over the weekend is that Donald Trump, in a most intemperate moment, which uh, which you absolutely <laughs> noted, fancy that on on Saturday morning, tweeted that he knew that Mike Flynn had lied to the FBI. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that significant? Because if he knew that Michael Flynn lied to the FBI when Flynn was dismissed on February the fourteenth, when he asked James Comey, the FBI director, on February fifteenth to drop the investigation against Michael Flynn. He was committing what would be an obstruction of justice. Right. Well, he was telling him to stop looking into a crime that he, by his own account now, he knew to be a crime that had occurred. Exactly. So, like, it was, it was literally the worst possible thing yeah. that you could conceivably say, and he said it yeah. <laughs> in immediate reaction to this, which is, which is a big, like, a huge part of this unfolding sequence of events is that um, at every juncture, like it, it, there's a lot that's going on here that happened behind closed doors where you could expect a conspiracy of intelligent people with strong self-preservation instincts to be able to fudge and obfuscate and tacitly conspire to simply deny that things were said or happened because they're very hard to prove from the outside. And at every juncture where all they would really need to do to facilitate that strategy is just sit quietly, say nothing, and let the investigators try to prove that what they think happened happened – Someone comes out and says the exact stupidest, worst possible thing to confirm that they knew something at a time it wasn't proven they knew it or to characterize things in a way that makes them look way, way, way worse. To the point where Donald Trump, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer is out in the press today trying to claim that this tweet in which he claimed he admits prior knowledge of the of Mike Flynn's offense before seeking to lean on on James Comey was drafted by him and that therefore like he is and I, I, I you know, I have heard many occasions when someone has made a statement and then tried to say that that statement shouldn't count because they made it before consulting their lawyer and that wasn't wise. I have never heard of an instance where someone says their statement shouldn't count because they have consulted with their lawyer and their lawyer told them to say the wrong thing. I'm not a lawyer myself, but I don't think that that flies great as a defense for, for admitting it. For well, admitting no, crime. it shows you how desperate they are because, in fact, although uh, John Dowd, the White House lawyer, said this again today, he, it was leaked over the weekend. And he's trying to laugh it off in this kind of goofy, oh, silly me, it's the last time I'm going well, to write a tweet for him as though, you know, you either, you, you either like, were responsible for your client admitting to a major offense or you're lying now, uh, and that's going to be a problem. pretty sure what happened is, is that everybody realizes on Saturday after Trump sends out this tweet, having told him, keep your mouth and your shut and your phone on off, 
oh, what do we do? And then the lawyer says, oh, I'll say I was the one who drafted the tweet, which is, by the way, probably an offense which will get him disbarred. Uh, and it's like he's going to take the fall for Trump. But what has now said, John Dowd, just to tell you the Alice in Wonderland where he is, it says, okay, I wrote the tweet, but it's okay I wrote the tweet which could constitute obstruction of justice because a president cannot obstruct justice while he is still president. Mm. A president is beyond obstructing justice because he gets to decide what justice is. And it's like, oh, my well, God. That, well, I mean, right. I, mean, I mean, that's the thing. They are, they are simultaneously – I mean, like the most – the classic Trump move in all areas of public argument is – I absolutely did not do this thing that I'm accused of, even though all sorts of evidence exists. And even if I did, it doesn't matter because, A, there's nothing wrong with it, and B, oh, look over here at some accusation I'm going to wildly throw at some other person somewhere else in in the context. And, you know, I guess as intellectuals, I think we all know why it's inherently problematic to say, I didn't do it, and even if I did, here's like here are all the reasons why it's totally fine that I did. But seemingly as a matter of just public rebuttal, this flies way further than you would think. It's a bit like uh, you know Roy Moore, the Senate candidate from Alabama's kind of you know yes I dated fourteen year old girls, but uh, um, or no I didn't date fourteen year old girls, but even if I did, uh, who's to say there's anything? Who's to say there's anything wrong with that? Because I had their mother's permission. Yeah, and I mean I mean the thing the thing about this is it's clearly you know okay what is this originally about? The underlying substance seems to be that the Trump campaign, for reasons yet to be determined, was extremely keen to come into office, facilitate a major reorientation of American foreign policy in a much more pro-Russian direction, right? Um, The precise motives for that, some find suspicious, but maybe they just are really geopolitically committed to to a friendlier relationship with, with Russia. What this meant was that during the course of the transition, while the Obama administration was still in office and attempting to publicize the fact that Russia had intervened in the U.S. election, put in place some kind of punishment mechanism for the fact that they had done that, set a train in motion to investigate it, hold Russia accountable, etc., um, in one instance impose some, uh, some sanctions in immediate retaliation – it seems like what the Trump campaign was trying to do was effectively communicate to Russia, don't worry about what's about to happen. There's no need to respond to it. Once we get into office, it's all going to go away. We're going to have this pivot, and it's going to be like it never happened. So one, the thing Mike Flynn ended up on the hook for was that he was calling the Russian ambassador when these sanctions from the Obama administration were about to come into place, basically saying, okay, you're about to get hit with sanctions, but don't do anything in response to that because it's all going to go away once we, once we come in. Whether that's appropriate, legal, uh, wise, that's certainly an argument worth having. But what's definitely not legal is that when the FBI come and say, hey, so this wiretap we have on the Russian ambassador, um, well, what they, I guess they first of all said, so did you say this to the Russian ambassador? Mm-hmm. And he yeah. said, no, I totally did not say that. And then they go, well, that's funny because we've got this wiretap <laughs> that would seem to show that you absolutely did. So he's on the, he's on the hook for that specific thing. And he then got fired because their version of events is that um, he lied to all of them when they asked him about it, so they so he had to go. Um, 
But A, that's very suspicious because it seems odd that Mike Flynn would be totally freelancing and carrying out that kind of that kind of exchange. But B, if they knew that he had done that and they were firing him because he told that lie and they knew it was a lie, well, then telling the FBI director that he needs to shut down his investigation into it and then firing the FBI director because uh, he doesn't do that. And then after you've made up a trumped up unrelated reason for why you fired the FBI director, going on national television television yourself the next day and saying, oh, it was because of the Russia thing. That's why I did it. All of this would seem to open you up, uh, you know, uh, wide enough for a coach and horses to a charge of obstruction of justice, even if, you know, the underlying substance is still all yet to be proved. Essentially, the underlying crime here would be if Russia definitely did an illegal thing, which is hack these email accounts and then make that content available in order to advantage Trump in the election. If Trump conspired in that, then that's criminal because a crime was committed and he was involved in it. All of that's still like TBD. But the obstruction of justice is much easier to prove. The laws are much clearer. The precedent conviction is much stronger. And as far as I can see, he's almost basically admitted publicly on several occasions all of the relevant facts for the, for, for the case right now. We're kind of waiting to see the mechanism through which it will manifest. But with that charge alone, we're there almost. Yeah, Mueller's got him. Mueller's got him. I mean, uh, I'm actually feeling like Robert Mugabe's in a better position now. Uh, (laughs) Because, I mean, Mueller's got him on obstruction of justice. And it's just a question of, in terms of Mueller's timing, when Mueller wants to roll this out. And again, he's working up the ladder. So he's not going to go to Trump until everybody else has been taken down. Uh, But let me backfill the the other dimension of it, which is the context, the Russian context, to tell you why this might be quite serious and beyond just simply those five conversations on December 29th, because mm-hmm. that's after the election. What also came out last week, but was sort of swept just aside by the news, is the extent of the Russians trying to make contact with the Trump people through the spring of 2016. Now, part of this was set in motion because the Trump campaign were taking on these Walter Mitty types to say they had foreign policy advisors. And these guys, like George Papadopoulos and Carter Page, are like, oh, yeah, we, we know Russians. We'll set up a visit. We'll set up a summit between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. So that yeah. starts it. Sending emails back and forth with subject headings like back channel to Russia. Yeah. <laughs> One of my favorite sub- subplots of this whole thing is with every release of new emails, they always have these subject lines that like, they're the equivalent of if you wanted to carry out like a, a conspiracy to rob a bank, like sending a bunch of emails back and forth saying bank robbery as the subject headline. <laughs> I mean, like street-level drug dealers are probably more careful in their use of coded speech than these people who attempted to uh, uh, to capture the American political system yeah. via a conspiracy war, which suggests a kind of, like, A, incompetence and idiocy, but also just a generalized total lack of awareness in many ways of the severity and potential seriousness of what they were well, doing. Well, just before Paul jumps in, let me just add the, the next um, story, which has come out, which I'm not sure a lot of people are The Russians, of course, got wind of this that the Trump people want to talk to them. So in the spring, so they get a hold of a National Rifle Association activist hmm. uh, because one of the, uh, the deputy director of the Russian Central Bank is a big gun nut and is also basically going to the National Rifle Association convention. Hmm. And they go, let's have Trump and we'll set it up at, at the Trump can meet Putin and we'll talk about it at the NRA convention in Kentucky. And Donald Trump Jr. briefly met the deputy director of the Russian Central Bank, Alexander Torshin there. Then they got a hold of a Christian activist, Gary Rick Clinton, and said, well, you know, we like religion, just like Donald Trump likes religion. Neither of which is true, of course, but said, why don't you set up a meeting between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump? And so 
this is all going on in the spring. And why do I mention this? This is all the lead up to the meeting that did take place, which was between Trump Jr., Kushner, campaign manager Paul Manafort, with three Kremlin-linked envoys in early June 2016. Yeah, like, yeah, like I, 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 some kind of Kremlin-associated lawyer, uh, a guy who was manifestly a Russian counterintelligence operative, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, the British guy no, that they no, had the used third, as the third a, one's the bro- The third one the financial guy for the Russian billionaire oh, that yes. Trump hangs out with. But here's why that means – And this was the one that was set up by Donald Trump Jr. Yeah. with, as the email trail suggests, uh, the, the purpose of them having, quote, dirt on Hillary Clinton and their desire to transmit it. But the reason why I mention it again is the other item on the agenda from the Russians' point of view is they wanted the repeal of sanctions that were already in place, what's mm-hmm. known as the Magnitsky Act. Uh, which basically sanctioned Russian for human rights abuses. And so that topic of lifting sanctions did not just come up in December of 2016. Mm-hmm. It was already in place six months earlier. So that's, I mean, that's the chain that Mueller, Mueller's working. So that's why I say when Trump is out by the end of 2018, that's why I'm confident of it. Mm-hmm. Paul, you, you, you look uh, um, shell-shocked and horrified yeah, yeah, yeah. by, well, by I what's mean, unfolding I mean, I spend my here. life studying crazy dictators in, in, in Africa, mainly, and other parts of the world. And, and I, I can't get over the fact that I mean, Mugabe looks like the, the smoothest, most effective kind of operator in the world compared to, to Trump. I mean, is, is it just me? And I speak as a kind of rank outsider on US politics. Or, or is this entire regime... Just rubbish. It, it's just absolutely hopeless. I mean, it can't even run a conspiracy because it doesn't really understand what a conspiracy is. Well, I would say that, I mean, the, the, beginning, the beginning step of any successful conspiracy is to acknowledge that you were involved in one and yeah. take appropriate steps. Whereas these people seem to have performed many of the component parts of a conspiracy without having the kind of reflectiveness or coherence to like, think that through. I mean, Trump himself is... I mean, I'm I'm a dad, right? So, so I've I've got I've got two sons who are both sort of students now. But when they were younger, if either of my sons had behaved like Donald Trump does on a sort of superficial level, they I would have told them off. I mean, he the only way I can understand him as an outsider is that he's kind of a giant spoiled brat with no friends who who behaves like my toddler did when it's like, did you break that? No, no, I didn't break that. Uh, and it's, it's, it's exactly the same sort of behavior. And once I start thinking about him in, the, in, that, in that framework, I, can, I feel I can understand him a lot better, which is kind of worrying when he's the president of the United States of America. <laughs> but at the same time, I, I kind of wondered about him, and you two are experts in this field, but wh- where, where is the establishment? Where, where are the intelligent people who I know exist, exist in the US, exist in Washington, but not just in Washington. You don't have to be a Washington insider. There are plenty of intelligent people in the US. You know, where, where are the people, the elites, who I, I think in one of these, I can't remember if it, if, if it was the, uh, the, the article about, about impeachment that we might come onto in a, in a bit or something else I was reading about. You know, what, why has the elite in America kind of forgotten what it's supposed to be doing as an elite? And I wondered where you thought that was going. Well, I think, I mean, there's two bits to it. Like, within the executive branch, you have a variety of people who 
kind of weren't on the campaign but have since been brought into the government who feel a sense of responsibility, I would surmise, to try and contain this mm. irresponsible lunatic uh, for as long as he's in office. Into that category, I would put people like James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, H.R. Mm. Uh, McMaster, the National Security Advisor, um, and, you know, much of the permanent. I mean, even Jeff Sessions, who is the uh, ethno-nationalist attorney general, uh, who is using his uh, status as the head of the Justice Department to roll out all sorts of uh, immigration crackdowns and, you know, race-based identity, uh, identity-oriented policies to do with, uh, to, to do with justice and criminal law. Um, you know, even he knows that Trump is kind of a bit of an idiot, but a useful idiot in some ways. So I, th I think the smart people are, are managing and containing to the best their ability in the executive. The executive is also oversupplied at the moment with third-rate or fifth-rate desperados and rogues and randoms who, because they got on board early with the Trump train when it seemed like he didn't have a chance of winning and everybody who knew what they were doing was working for other candidates, they've kind of fallen their way into it. And that's part of why like, there's the sort of atmosphere of chaos because part, a lot of the conspirators, if there is a conspiracy, are just dumb and inexperienced and don't know what they're doing. And the ones who are smart can't really rely on the man at the top because, as we alluded to earlier, he has this terrible habit. Like, you could see sit down with them for a whole afternoon, agree on like the elaborate tissue of lies required to get you all through this okay, and then he will go on TV that afternoon and say the exact opposite of whatever you've told him is the most necessary thing. So that's bad. But then the other issue is that if it, it's possible for Mike Flynn to go to jail for what he's done. It's possible for Jared Kushner to be indicted and go to jail for you know anything that he might be found to have done if it's, if it's criminal. And there'll be arguments about pardons and the capacity for pardons, but it's pretty clear they're all open to the criminal justice system. The one person who that's not clear about is the actual occupant of the presidency itself. The ultimate sanction to deal with a president who has committed serious crimes is not to like send them down to the local courthouse where a jury of their peers yeah. faced them, it's to impeach them, which means that the House of Representatives files a bunch of charges and then the Senate gathers to convict. That's what ended up doing for Richard Nixon in Watergate, that, mm. um, that basically Congress decided this guy has unambiguously done something really bad and he's, got, and he's got to go. It's really, really unclear at the moment, even if, as seems glaringly clear, what's coming down the line is an indictment from Robert Mueller that says... Uh, definitely obstruction of justice has been committed probably a whole bunch of other underlying behavior that's outrageous is what that obstruction of justice was designed to cover up and the president was at the heart of it it's very unclear that the republicans in congress are prepared to stand up and actually carry out that impeachment mainly because i think they're afraid of the fact that their voters and the president's voters are in large part the same people and they think they would be furious if they if they did that because in the kind of current climate of facts and media uh, especially on the conservative side uh, the reaction of a huge portion of trump's voters and the republican voters is just they don't give any credibility no matter what the level of evidence to the things that are being that the president's being accused of i i, I guess i would add to that uh, codependency theory and you know what it's like that if you've got a spouse or a partner who abuses alcohol or abuses drugs or even abuses you you sometimes get locked into that relationship and I think that happened at two different levels from two different groups I think during the campaign because we got to acknowledge we won the election hmm. and the codependents in that case were folks that we might now call part of the hard right who mobilized Trump they could mobilize him Steve Bannon right yeah. 
uh, who is back at Breitbart News, or uh, Robert Mercer, who's the billionaire hedge fund man behind, you know, who helped bankroll Cambridge Analytica to do all the data crunching yeah. where they could target states. So, you know, they they took the showman, and that's what Trump was. And they they organized the circus, and they got him in. What we've got now is, of course, we've got, you know, poachers turned gamekeepers at the agencies, uh, whether it's health, education, uh, the financial agencies, environmental protection agency, which is no longer protecting the environment. But most importantly, we've got the codependents who are the Republicans in Congress. And there's two things here. One is, is that Adam's right. I think they're worried that if they separate themselves from Trump, they'll pay the price, not just simply because of, quote, his voters, but because they've got aforementioned Steve Bannon mm-hmm. and the hard right ready for civil war within the Republican Party. And Fox News, and which, Fox is, News, which is widely watched by their demographic, too. Exactly. And then I think the, the other reason is they think they're going to use him or they're going to keep him as cover while they get whatever they can out of Congress, which is the big news story that is in the middle of this, which is yeah. the Senate passed uh, the $1.5 trillion tax cut provision uh, on Friday. It still has to be reconciled yeah. with the House. Uh, the budget remains to be passed. The deadline is December 15th if they can meet that. And they're not going to turn against Trump while they can still get this big windfall for the tax cuts and then the budget provisions through. So it's basically getting as much gravy off the train before it wrecks. Hmm. Uh, does that mean once they get that, that they'll ditch him in the spring? Eh, I think that might be a possibility. Yeah, no, I, I tend to think it's about fear of the voters primarily because the guy who's waiting to step in, is vi- uh, who would become the new president, the current vice president, Mike Pence, is basically an empty suit corporate shill uh, yeah. uh, who would be much less disruptive uh, in many ways and equally happy to sign the legislation. Uh, so I, I think it is, it's clearly their own sense that that won't fly with some important constituencies, especially the kind of fire-breathing uh, populist right-wing media and those who consume it to such quantity they've lost the, sight of everything the else. The problem with the voters' argument is surely that once they pass the tax bill, people are going to um, get... They're going to see very quickly many of the Trump supporters that they are not going to benefit from the Trump presidency because the people who it, 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 it kind of really slams over the head are the people who earn less than 70,000 US dollars a year or well, even less. Well, let me kick it back to you, Paul, with Zimbabwe, right? And that is if Robert Mugabe passed an economic measure, did people feel the economic pain immediately? Or was it only 6, 12, 18 months down the line? That they yeah, although I, I mean, I, th- I think if he passed an economic measure in the last five years, no one would have noticed because the economy is down the pan anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think the difference is that, that, that Mugabe's allies were, it was the army. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, and they were kind of, that was the point about they were slightly privatized from the fact they were in Zimbabwe because no. they had access to diamonds. Whereas I think, the, I think the difference is if you're scared of voters and your voters are by and large disenfranchised. Uh, disengaged mm. in some ways or engaged in kind of anti-politics almost, mm. then actually at some point they are going to realise that this is not what they voted for. But I, think mm. I mean, you're, abso- you're absolutely right. I think that, I mean, he, Donald Trump rode to power on the back of unambiguous pledges to the effect that he was going to give the forgotten man uh, his share from the economy at the expense of the rich and at the expense of the elites. The agenda that has now gone through Congress with this tax bill is uh, makes an absolute laughing stock of that to the extent that Donald Trump ever actually believed it then he clearly hasn't paid much attention to what his his, his party's members are voting on because it it, it is not just not advancing that agenda, it is 180 degrees opposed to that agenda. It's opposed to its own rhetoric. So it's, it's 
opposed yeah. to its own explanation of what the bill is. How, is how, yeah. However, he also <laughs> rode his way to power off the back of a kind of angry narrative of mm. racial grievance and mm. cultural reaction and them versus us, where us is, uh, uh, you know, a very specific constituency mm. of white male um, excluded in their own mind people who yeah. want to get their country back. And the will to believe all sorts of lies about what's actually happening in all sorts of policy areas, if you still have someone in charge who is performing as the representative of that angry, culture-focused sentiment, it seems to be huge. So I think the test is going to be, like, can the pull of gravity from the fact that all the stuff that Congress is doing really, really hurts the interests of mm. poor and middle-class uh, people, including white people, going to be able to overcome uh, the constant demagoguing on issues of race um, and identity and gender that Donald Trump is engaging in to try and keep that base sweet? Because it certainly seems like, you know, for all the talk of economic anxiety, Anxiety, they really care very directly about some of that stuff, too. But see, I don't think we face that economic question until Trump's out of office. So let me explain. I think he'll be gone by 2018 because of Trump and Russia. What happens with the tax cut is, is that in the short term, which is why I was pressing you, yeah. six months, 12 months, you're going to get an uptick in the economy because this is effectively a Keynesian measure, which yeah. is the federal government has just thrown a whole bunch of money via rich people back into the economy, however they wish to spend it, however they, as long as they keep it inside the country. That's going to inflate the stock market, which, of course, Trump will hold up as being... Which is about the only... Which Donald Trump seems to think is the economy. That's the only thing he ever seems to Exactly. But like I said, artificially, you're going to get an artificial boom off this tax cut, at least for for a few months, which is why I think paradoxically, economically, they'll keep playing that message that he has helped lead to economic success and hope that keeps the Trump-Russia wolves... The door, you know, away from the door. Yeah. Well, it would certainly help if uh, if his voters read the news, or indeed if the news agencies who provide them with it were prepared to report the facts. But I guess we've had that conversation <laughs> before. Anyway, Ezra Klein will have to wait. We'll have to give his argument about impeachment our due attention uh, in a, a later show. But for now, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. You can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes, uh, where you can leave us a rating or a comment we'd really appreciate that and please share us on social media tell people hey i listen to this show it's amazing maybe you'd like it too uh, that's how people find out about things and we would we would really uh, consider it a special favor to us if you're prepared to to do that uh, you could also come on our show page on facebook facebook.com forward slash poll worldview where you can see uh, article links links to the show uh, photographs of us uh, recording our live edition most recently posted um, and our participants today have been scott lucas where can people find you online scott Oh, all over the place. Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. You can find me at the news and analysis website, EA Worldview at eaworldview.com. Or Adam and I are both members of the newly established Trump Project, which is at trumpproject.org. Mm-hmm. Should emphasize that is a project uh, devoted to the analysis and critique of the Donald Trump administration. Say, it it is not a, like a super PAC <laughs> or, or some other kind of uh, exhortatory vote mobilization mechanism. Uh, Paul, uh, do you have a social media presence? And if so, are people welcome to track you down there? Yeah, you can find me on, uh, on, on Twitter at JaxoPB. Uh, or the easiest place to find me is probably in, on uh, using from the department, the International Development Department, University of Birmingham, where I have my own kind of subpage, and that has links to my social media accounts and all of that. Awesome. I'm Adam Quinn. You can find me on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, but. 
far more useful to you, I think, is to find me on Facebook, where I spend a lot more of my time sharing uh, articles and chattering away. I'm Adam Quinn, 161, uh, if you want to do it by numbers, or I'm the guy standing next to Lyndon Johnson, uh, if you want to do it by photos. Uh, Our producer is Connor McKenna. You've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, England. And thanks today to our new sponsors, uh, the Pulsis Good Ideas Fund, who are helping keep this podcast on the road. We really appreciate their support. We'll be back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye.